Radio crew, let's get to work. Hope everybody's well and, of course, staying happy and healthy. This week's guest is Mr. Joseph Lidgerwood. Joseph is a chef and the business owner of the ever-popular Michelin star restaurant Evert in South Korea. Joseph shares his insights on how he traveled the world through pop-up restaurants and eventually fell in love with Korean cuisine. He explains the mindset and what it takes to transition from a chef working as an employee to owning an exclusive and famous Michelin star restaurant that is booked months in advance. Expect to learn the mistakes that chefs can make in the kitchen, how to handle a crisis or mistake during a service, how to keep your passion alive during the early years despite limited progress, how to deal with complaints in a professional manner, how to handle the high pressure and fast paced environment of a busy kitchen, the mindset that Joseph implemented to achieve success in his business, and of course all things food and cooking cuisine. Crew, on the rare occasion that I go out for dinner and enjoy a meal that someone else has prepared for me, I often find myself curious about the people who are actually preparing that meal. I find myself asking questions to myself, like what experience do they have? What can they do in a commercial kitchen, for example, that I can't do with food at home? Maybe it's just me, but I've always found it interesting and somewhat mesmerizing to watch somebody incredibly talented with food piece together flavor combinations that I couldn't even dream of. On top of this, in times past, I've found myself on numerous occasions watching MasterChef or old episodes of Kitchen Nightmares with Gordon Ramsay and imagining myself as a master of culinary cuisine. So for me, this was a bit of a reality check and a fantastic opportunity to learn from someone who has actually achieved what I have in the past fantasized about. Let us please welcome Mr. Joseph Lidgerwood. Lidgerwood, how are you, my friend? What's going on? Hello, thank you. Nice to see you again, Tim. Nice to see you. It is. Now, a lot of our viewers won't know this, but I'm going to give them the inside scoop. I knew you a very, very long time ago, and I'm talking, it must be, what, 15 15 years ago, something like that. I don't know the maths, but it was high school anyway. Yeah. And uh, that was probably, I think we were just talking about it before the show, the last time I saw you, we were literally sitting in a high school class together. Now you are a super successful businessman over in some other country, which you're going to tell us a little bit about. Tell us a little bit who you are and what have you been up to since you, you left school? So, Joseph Lidgerd, I am a chef owner here in South Korea. Um, and since school, uh, yeah, I've been on kind of a bit of a journey through, I've lived and worked in six different countries. And I've done pop-up restaurants in about 20 different countries throughout the world. And now I've finally settled in South Korea, which I have a restaurant called Evert. I love the name. So obviously, is, is Evert inspired through anything particularly or your last name or anything like that it's or my, partner? Uh, it's actually my middle name there. So just a self-indulgent using my middle name there. Um, but in Korea, uh, like the names are very important. So it's like Ebit or like LG. Kia, Samsung. It has that um kind of ring to it, that kind of two-part ring to it. Gotcha. I can appreciate that. Now, how did the how on earth did you sort of come to work in South Korea? Because not many I can't imagine there'd be many chefs that well, I, I'm sure that chefs obviously, you know, travel to like I, I hear France is a really big one to learn the French cuisine. I hear like, yeah. you know, even Vietnamese, I hear a lot of people going to, I think perhaps what I consider, and I, I have no idea, I'm just saying what I hear, mainstream yeah. uh, countries that chefs go to to learn that cuisine. How did you come into uh, residing and working in South Korea? Yeah. Um, yeah, it is not, I guess it wouldn't be the first choice for most chefs, um, especially seven, I've been here five years, but I came here first of all seven years ago. Uh, and essentially I left Tasmania to broaden my experience as a chef. I think when I was first starting off, Tasmania has amazing restaurants now, but was only just emerging when I left. And so I started off in the UK. Um, I did time in Scandinavia and then in America, um, at various Michelin star restaurants, um, with all nice little shiny, shiny stars. And then halfway through, I was kind of a bit over the whole, Michelin restaurants, 
70 to 100 hour weeks. Um, that's not an exaggeration. That's kind of what you do when you're working at these places. And we started a restaurant pop-up restaurant group that went around the world just to escape the mundaneness of restaurants. When you're in a kitchen environment, you're just like, you have to be a robot and you have to learn and absorb. You kind of get to a point in your life where you feel like you have enough skills and you find it quite limiting. So we wanted to travel the world and build pop-up restaurants kind of as a self-indulgent way to learn more about different cuisines. It's the best way to learn about Thai cuisine. The best way to learn about Viennese Vietnamese cuisine is not from a book. It's from being there. Um, And you also need a goal. So we would travel around to these countries, whether it was China or USA, France, Oman, um, South Africa, and we would spend three weeks learning about the cuisine and then one week making a menu from that. And then we would do that for a whole year. One of the countries was Korea. And then it was the, one of the countries that I was completely surprised about what was there. Like when I think about Thai food and I went to Thailand or I thought about Vietnamese food or I thought about Japanese food, it was quite similar to what I had had. There's very good versions of Japanese food in London. There's very good Thai restaurants. But when it comes to Korean cuisine, most people will think either kimchi or bibimbap or mm. green bottle soju or BTS. Um, <laughs> that's not really, for me, that's not really Korea. There's so much more here. And when I came, I was just so su- surprised about why, what was here and why no one else had come and kind of showcased that outside of Korea. So I did these pop-ups and then at the end we finished the restaurants and then I decided to come here and from the pop, I did some pop-up restaurants here in Korea and luckily someone enjoyed it enough to help me open a restaurant. Amazing. Amazing journey as well. Just the fact that you've been to all of these countries learning those different cuisines, it can only improve your your skill set and your understanding of food in general and the flavors that go together. So it's just, it's it's also amazing that, yeah, Korea out of all of those perhaps non-mainstream you know, countries, as you spoke about before, you decided to to go, yeah, somewhere a little bit different. And as you said, somewhere where perhaps not a lot of chefs have, have been before. I'm curious, you've mentioned, obviously, you're a, a business owner as well as a chef, and obviously, you're owning your own restaurant, amongst other things, uh, over in South Korea. How did you find the transition process? Like you mentioned the robotic nature of being a chef, working for somebody else in a kitchen to now, you know, running your own empire. How did you sort of find that transition process? What were the mindset changes that you need to make going from, uh, I guess, an employee to a business owner mindset uh, that you have now? Yeah, I think obviously the start is always rough. Biggest lesson, if I had to pick just one transitional point that I had to think would be the, the biggest was knowing that no one will work as hard for your dreams as you. You can't expect, you will have to expect that most people will put in, especially as an employee, will put in possibly minimum effort um, to get by. And you have to accept that if you are running a restaurant and you are running a business, you're probably not like everyone else. So the demands I put on myself and the expectations I put on myself as a chef or as an individual, I cannot expect that from anyone within my team, really. I would love if it was possible, but I kind of had to, I was definitely, when I was first starting, pushing people a lot harder than they were. And I had to come to the realization that I am this successful. I have gained whatever success you could measure because I'm probably not the same as most people. Most people just want to do the 38 or 40 hours and have a nice life, um, which is good. And that was kind of the biggest transition, I think, for me. Um, and since so realizing many- that, we've been able to have a good team. Gotcha, gotcha. How how many hours are you yeah. doing now that you are uh, basically full time uh, business restaurant owner and operator? What would I a typical it's average divided? Week look I like? do average week at Everett. I will do sixty. I try and do more than the people there. So most we have the strict working hours, um, and that's all by the book there. I try to do more just to set the standard, and it's also nice for me to be there for every service. And then I will do probably, depending on the project, I would say my actual working hours would be between 100. 
I would say, per week. Wow. Yeah, and that, I think that's the difference, isn't it, is as you said, the employee mindset of, yep, let's get my 40-hour week done and you know, yeah. go and party on the weekends. As somebody who perhaps has that entrepreneurial vision, you know that you're going to have to be putting in over and above. And even then, that's only just going to get you started. And that seems to be a common theme um, amongst everybody that we've had on the show and, and just in live talking to different people. Anyone who's gone from that employee mindset to a business mindset, they're always doing more than 40 hours and usually over yeah. 50 as well. So there's no surprises there. I'm curious in the mistakes, I guess, from two parts. Now that obviously you've been a chef for a really long time and now a business operator as well, what do you yeah. think some of the mistakes are that I guess chefs can make in the kitchen as I guess question part A and part B, what do you think that some of the mistakes are that a restaurateur, so somebody who, who actually owns the business themselves makes? I, from an outside perspective, you know, the only experience I have of a restaurant is I go in, I order some food, and I guess I pick up on what I'm looking for is great customer service. I'm looking yeah. for a warm invitation. I also want to be made to feel a little bit special. And that's just, you know, I guess something that um, I've found that good restaurants or restaurants that I like to go to, they all seem to have that in common. And most of the time, the owner seems to be the person that even comes to greet you or has some involvement. Maybe they're at the bar and they offer you something on the way out. But it's yeah. light and day difference to a restaurant that you walk in. So just a quick example, me and a mate, we walked into a restaurant, not to be named, but we walked in there on the weekend, uh, last weekend, Popped in just for a quick brekkie, quick coffee, wandered in and it, it literally, I think I timed it, I think it was about seven minutes and we're just standing there looking around like, is this table service? Is this waiting to be seated? What's going on? Yeah. And that confusion was enough. Like, like we still stayed, we still ordered the food, that's fine. But already it's got like this sort of negative experience yeah, yeah. attached to yeah. it I, I don't know how to explain it any other way no, but- you do. yeah it's definitely that little cloud that's hanging over you from that one for sure and i think yeah guest experiences literally was within fine dinings most of our most, we have one we have t- countless meetings um, that i'm part of but one we have is we have a tactical meeting where the seniors will talk about the meeting about the guest experience um, so we have two meetings. One is on the Thursday and one is on the Friday. All the seniors will get together and talk about what we can talk about in the meeting with the, the juniors. And we spend an hour every week just talking about how to improve guest experience because it is most, it's the difference between, it's the best advertisement. Like you can put billboards up everywhere, but the best advertisement is your friend saying, hey, you should go there because it's great. That will, you will go there. So that's what we spend all our time and effort in is the guest experience because at the end of the day, that's what we are here for in the service industry. And so in terms of, I guess, I guess that, yeah, yeah. In terms of, I guess, those mistakes, obviously customer service and not providing or not thinking about and maybe not doing those meetings that you mentioned before um, obviously seems like a place that perhaps an aspiring chef uh, or business owner in that space would, should definitely consider looking into in more detail. Yeah, so I think to answer, you kind of went off track there, sorry, with your, I guess, with your two questions, going in as a chef and common mistakes, I think it'll be two mistakes. The first one is if you haven't, if you're starting the industry, I think there is a warped perception now with a lot of the TV programs that come out of what is actually, it is like to be a chef um, and what you will actually get to do for the first four to five years of your career, you will be doing very mundane jobs. So I think a lot of so I see it all the time now, people entering the field thinking they're on MasterChef and they're going to come to me in the first day and design a dish um, and I'm going to judge it for them or something like that or something. You know, we just feel like that they're on the first week, the countless people that we've had that have just, I don't feel like I'm showing my true passion here. It's like at the, at the start, it's a grind. It is a, you've got to learn your craft. You've got to hone your skills. You've got to do all that. So that would be the first mistake entering it, I think, once, if you have a good mindset and you enter the kitchen, I think the biggest mistake for young chefs would be they overestimate what they can do in an hour and they underestimate what they can do in a day. Like when they're planning the day, most kitchens will have – most um, good restaurants will have a list per section and within that section you try to time your list to do the, the jobs as best and – as efficiently as possible while trying to do 
multiple tasks at a time. Most people underestimate what they can do, overestimate what they can do in an hour and underestimate what they can do in a day, I would say. Into mistakes made by restaurateurs. I think I'm, so within my friendship group, like I kind of surrounded myself with similar-minded people. So we're all at the stage now where we are either owning restaurants or we're a big part of the restaurant, whether it's head chef or owner chef in different countries. I would say some of the mistakes I see is that when you get to the level of I own a restaurant, it gets a it gets an award or it's popular or whatever. Sometimes people think that that's the time to relax or take the foot off the brake and obviously try to find the work-life balance that they've probably been, been searching for for 20 years. And sometimes the drop-off is too severe. So I think if you do want to transition down, which is great, some people you get a family, you have kids, you definitely want to find that balance. But then it can't be an overnight process. It's going to be a one to two to three-year process of finding the right people because at the start of a restaurant, you're doing everything at the or any business, you're doing your filing the tax reports, you're doing this, you're doing all those mundane jobs and you have to find that transition time with finding the right people, hiring again the right people and then transitioning. I think that would be a common mistake I've seen. It's so true. Just what you mentioned before about like people watching MasterChef and then having all these sort of preconceived ideas <laughs> when they go into a kitchen. Uh, I, can, I can totally imagine that's that's a thing because it's – I think that, yeah, it's that glorification, that sort of, I don't know if Hollywoodization is even a word, but I just made it one. You know, it's that kind of glamorizing everything. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know if glamorizing is a word, but I just made that another word. But, no, you know, when you, when you beautify, that's definitely a better word. I'll use that. When you yeah. beautify something like that on TV and enough people watch it, that's literally, and you get like all these sort of, which I think it's great because it, it sort of offers exposure to the industry, right? It's it's, it's it's exposure to food, it's exposure to flavor, all that stuff. But that that's what you've mentioned is is probably the, the downside is there's those sort of preconceived ideas about, you know, the, the direction that they can take immediately or the, the success that they can have without, you know, going through the robotic tasks that you mentioned before, you know, at some yeah. point. And again, I've, I've never, I've never worked in it, but if it's like every other industry that I've ever interviewed or ever worked in myself, you're usually starting off with like the most boring mundane jobs that anyone could ever imagine yeah. and you work your way up. Yeah. And I think that it's a common yeah. theme now that particularly the young ones coming through is that they just expect that they're going to get the, the top end roles, the best positions without <laughs> learning the hard craft and unfortunately i think yeah, yeah perhaps master chef and you know celebrity chef and hell's kitchen all that stuff it's entertaining but i guess for people in that yeah. industry it might be sort of leading them astray just but, yeah, but on that note yeah. on that note let, let's let's hang on that vein for a quick second famous celebrity yeah. chef who's your favorite oh i still have a soft spot for probably marco pierre white i think um if anyone wants to watch a, a proper cooking tv show if they if they YouTube Marco Pierre White cooks for, there's four episodes there which really it's very I think it's a bit dated now, but it definitely shows the intensity of kitchens. I think better than a MasterChef TV show. Is it true that Marco Pierre White trained Gordon Ramsay? Yes, and Phil Howard and a lot of other amazing talented chefs. Gotcha. So admission, I have you watched see, you Marco. I have watched Marco Pierre White oh, once. I watched him uh, make scrambled eggs and I actually followed his okay. method and uh, unbelievable. Just a, a, a few small tweaks, you know, a couple of little advices yeah. and, uh, yeah. yeah, again, my, my chefing <laughs> ability is pretty low. But, yeah, you know, just by watching one video, I can say that my scrambled eggs have gone from a five to a seven, so that's something, that's, right? That's definitely worth it. <laughs> but also you can, in that TV program I mentioned, you can actually see a young Gordon Ramsay in the background actually baby face as opposed to now like he's uh didn't everybody like <laughs> didn't everybody like have a go at him because he had a facelift or something probably yeah. <laughs> but um in terms of crisis like you know i guess on masterchef and uh you know some of these some of these shows that i that i have watched from time to time you you see the ability of a chef's uh or the the ability of a chef to handle uh, complex situations, crisis as they happen in the kitchen. And it, and obviously there's a lot of moving parts, like there's hot stoves, 
there's gas ovens, there's people moving around, there's knives flying everywhere. There's a lot going on. There's customer service to worry about. There's a lot going on. And in such a a busy environment, disasters are going to happen. How do you and I guess how would you recommend, uh, actually, you personally first, how would you uh, handle a crisis? And, of course, how do you recommend people sort of go through those hard times as they come up in, in a service? Yeah, um, I think it's the worst feeling. I think as a chef, when you've when you're on the line and you're you're responsible for a certain thing within that complex operation, and most of the time it's whatever any restaurant I've worked, it's a it's always been kind of degustation menu or course menu we call it now. And if your piece of the little Jenga puzzle comes out, the whole kind of train stops really. So um, during those times, it's pretty awful. I think it's just clear communication clear communication and then working backwards from the problem so to explain that one i would say clear communication most of the time if you're in a crisis the person is kind of not sure what to do like if you you've burnt something in the oven something's overcooked and you've gone to slice it and you normally take up to the pasta chef to plate that will spend like this kind of like minute trying to work out ah, instead of just being kind of maybe similar to like the army where you would just be like straight to the chef. Sorry, chef, it's overcooked. I need two minutes. Then where you, where you have, you have clear communication. The chef knows, okay, this table is going to need two more minutes. And then from that position there, he can communicate to the front of house, whether they need a, an extra round of drinks or they need to be, that table just needs to be a bit more love on the table. So they know what's happening. So, Within the crisis, that's working backwards from the situation. When I say that, we don't try and fix. A lot of people fixing the same thing at the same time, but we start with the guest and then we work it down to the plate. So we make sure that the guest is okay. Like, okay, it's going to be two to three minutes, which doesn't seem like a lifetime. But if you wait two to three minutes over 16 courses, you're waiting another 90 minutes on your meal. So we start with the guest first and then work our way backwards. That's kind of how we do it. But yeah, clear communication. Always kind of, I always just put my hand up. Sorry, chef, I fucked up. Um, I need two more minutes on this. And then normally when you do that, they'll give you a little bit of a, a little bit of a rinsing out, as we say in the kitchen. Like you get a little bit of a, a little bit of some, some tough love, but normally it's yep. okay. It's normally when you try to go around the situation and give something that's not right, that it becomes troublesome. So let me get this right. If so, let's say you've made a mistake in the kitchen. Do you go to yeah. the customer and, like you said, you work from the customer and go backwards? Would you tell the customer that you've overcooked or undercooked something, or would you just give no, it? Like, never. No, yeah. okay, got you. Oh, that was where I was confused. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah. um, <laughs> it's like, yeah, hey, I've overcooked uh, your meal. Have some confidence. Yeah, I won't no, do it again. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know how it is in Australia in fine dining, especially like in say two to three Michelin star level where kind of I've hovered around the the guest never needs the, the way that the guest experience works is they should never feel like a mistake has happened. Even if a blatant mistake has happened, they have this thing where we will not, if you say, if you go, I'm sorry, sir, we've overcooked you. Most guests nine times out of 10 will be, yeah, no problem. Um, mm-hmm. But it doesn't show that the, the restaurant is um, a capable kitchen doing that so how we normally do it is we will we'll send like one of the hostesses out with some drinks or, or something like that and smooth the time and then the guest feels like like they don't see any of the problems that happen and they should just have this kind of magical experience at the restaurant um and that's what we try to create well so if a mistake was to happen the person who was working the pass essentially the sous chef or the head chef who was over on the pass he will let the front of house know that that table needs time and then the front of house will take that problem and sort it. It makes sense. I like that idea of actually, yeah, like 100%. Yeah. If, I, if I was sitting in a restaurant, I wouldn't want to know. I just I just want, as you say, because <laughs> for, me, for, for me, like it's, you know, when you go to a restaurant, it's a special occasion. Like, I, you know, unless you're a yeah. multimillionaire like, or, or in the chef game, I'm not going to restaurants every yeah. day of the week. Like it's a special occasion, yeah. anniversary, birthday, something yeah. like that. And so I want it to be, yeah. yeah, like I want it to be a little bit of a, an occasion where or a little bit of a, yeah, an experience where I'm not thinking about all of that stuff. So I think that, yeah, totally from a consumer or a customer's perspective, I can see how 
that makes a lot more sense than yeah actually confronting the customer with the problem, <laughs> yeah. which uh, yeah could land in disaster. In terms of the, uh, Joseph, in terms of your passion, I mean you've been doing this quite yeah. a while. You know you've mentioned you've been all over the place. Uh, you know pop up. Uh, restaurants, pop-up experiences all around the world. How do you keep your passion alive yeah. when you, you know, you've spent so many years grinding away? Um, now you've finally made it to the top. You know, I know that you've. Um, how do you, how do you keep that passion? How do you keep that passion alive? Like all these years on, do you still get excited uh, about yeah, food? Think- Are there things that you can do to kind of stay inspired moving well, forward? I think- yeah, well, I think that's it. Sorry, I was ready to go with that question. Um, that's the that's the key thing. Is like it's if you don't find it a challenge anymore, it's very easy to lose your passion. Like when we first started, it was such a grind, but it was very easy to keep motivated because every day, if I wasn't there, the lights wouldn't be on. Like we would be, we would be it would close. Now I don't have to be there, so I have to find what does motivate me to be there. Like what does motivate me in regards to food, to this, to that. And I find found different things um, to keep myself busy. But that kind of that rush of excitement and learning and knowledge, I think, is one of the really cool things. So going in, like recently it's been very simple, but just now for family meal, I'm cooking family meal for the staff, Le- teaching myself how to cook really traditional Korean dishes like every day, like, okay, today I want to make gum jatang, which is this pork bone soup with perilla seed. And that's just like something I would never cook in fine dining because it's just this big, robust stew that's very delicious. But going in, it's like, okay, today I get to make Korean fried chicken and I'll get to do that. And that gives me some sort of joy from the the meetings or this. And it's just something that keeps the fire alive. I think just small things like that doesn't have to be these big things. Um, that keeps it going. And I guess, I mean, you know, you've been doing it a fair while and you know kind of what customers like. Well, you you, you 100% know what customers like. You've been doing it, you know, for that long. You get an idea for the palate of the customer. Do you find yourself sort of yeah. ever having to cut corners uh, in terms of food preparation or even, you know, prepare something in a particular way uh, to appease a customer knowing yourself that maybe it's not as traditional as you'd like or that it should be done a different way or maybe even your personal preference like you know you know that this particular uh, chicken meal needs to be prepared this way for it to get maximum output but the customer's palate's different I mean I don't know if it's probably such an issue in Korea but like actually living in Korea and serving Korean people but certainly like if you bought some of those traditional meals um, back to Oz, like my gut feeling would be like the Australian palate. Some of those dishes would need like adjusting for them to be considered yeah. like the kim the kimchi that we have here. Just a gut yeah. feeling. I'm sure it's probably like nothing <laughs> like what you guys are doing yeah. over there. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you ever yeah. have to like cut those corners and just go? You know what? We're uh, we're just gonna yeah, we're just gonna make this the way that they like it because they like it that yeah. way, even though it's done this way. Yeah, no, I think we wouldn't. So I'm kind of in a nice position now where we only have five tables in the restaurant. We only serve 14 guests per night. The price point kind of weeds out a lot of people who who you don't just stumble upon the restaurant and walk in kind of thing. You It's in the wrong part of town. Very There's like a 17-course menu. It's something that people kind of have a lot of – would book a couple months in advance to go to – um, so most of the people are quite accepting of the food that we do. Uh, one of the things I would say that we have, I've adjusted personally within my cooking is there's been certain tweaks like Korean palate don't like massive gamey flavors, I would say. So game birds. So like when I was in the UK, we would have snipe or grouse or pigeon and they'd be quite, they'd be aged birds and you let them, guts in age and they'll get this robust funk to it. Like this very funkiness to it. That's seen as a fault in Korea. That's like people won't eat it at all. Um, so our dry aging techniques have changed um, the way that we do things. Our, the way that we derive acidity and salt has changed. Most of the time when we're in the UK or US, we would just add lemon to like, if you're making just say a simple cream based sauce, you cut the fat with lemon. 
it balances it out. You have something that's high fat, no acidity. It's going to be too. It's going to be too English word for a liquid. It's going to be too fatty and oily. Um, it's going to make your palate feel dense. But in Korea, instead of you, if you use lemon, they say it's too acidic. And I couldn't understand it at the start because kimchi here is it's very powerful. So the way that we drive, derive acidity now is through fermentation. So like lacto fermentation of cabbages, and then we season up like that. Um, so there's been changes, but there hasn't been compromises. I wouldn't say. I like that. Yeah, not compromising on the quality of of what it should be, but rather yeah. adjusting. So I'm still it finding needs to ways be. to get around those problems as well. So understanding that the guest needs do come first, but trying to what's the most difficult problem that you've ever faced either as a chef or as a business owner and how did you overcome it i think it was the first i think it's always the start because once you start of the career because once you go along in any career you have enough experiences that you can move forward in a path i think when you start off and you're not quite sure that's when it's difficult so when i first started cooking I think when I was 16, it's kind of that, that age, 16, 17, where you're in college and all your friends are going out to parties and you're a chef and you have to work the weekends and you're working quite late. And there was that separation of kind of losing that kind of friend group that I had within high school and college and then just pretty much never being able to see them again, really, because my days off would be Monday, Tuesday, and theirs would be Saturday, Sunday. Um, so that was quite difficult. And yeah, it was that one. And also leaving in when I first moved to the UK, it's similar, just kind of, if you're going to push yourself, you're going to kind of alienate yourself a lot from a lot of other people. Um, and that was kind of a, a kind of a big thing to just understand, yeah, focus on myself and what I wanted to do, but then kind of build friendship groups that were different as well. In terms of, I mean, being in a restaurant and you perhaps in your situation, it may be slightly different now that you're in, I guess, more of an exclusive situation. You've got people booking in uh, in advance. You know, you're not, um, you, you, as you said, you're cutting out a lot of the, um, changing the clientele just based on the price point. How do you find in terms of difficult, in, in the past when you've worked in different restaurants, how have you found the process of dealing with those frustrating, difficult customers where no matter what you do, they're always saying, you know, this isn't right. It's kind of like the whole steak game where, you know, you said it was medium rare, you know, this is this is rare or you said it's medium rare, this is well done. You know, those guys that are like and, – and like you can spot them a mile off, right? Like like there's – to me, I'm not even a chef and I can see from a consumer's perspective, like there's usually two types of people that complain. One is a genuine complaint that's like – you know, fair enough, you know, that shouldn't be there or that shouldn't have happened, like yeah. we get it. And Definitely. then there's kind of like the other sort of person which is literally just like there to cause a scene and almost enjoy the attention that other people give them when they raise their voice or, you know, say something in a way that is a little bit unusual in public or isn't usually heard of. Like I feel like those people yeah. are kind of like, I guess, the wild card. Like you just never know what they're going to come out with, right? <laughs> Do you yeah. uh, ha- do you have any sort of strategies for dealing with the wild card? So yeah, the the wild card's always there, I guess, in every industry, isn't it? There's anyone that deals directly with the customers or guests has that experience of just there's no they're not gonna you're not gonna leave them they're not gonna leave happy or they're not gonna leave without um, at least trying to nudge a situation. Most of the time, so we I. The way that the our restaurant works is that the the kitchen will serve the food and we explain the dishes as we go out. And normally I can tell within, like you said, you can tell a mile off. You can tell straight away that, okay, this guest is going to be difficult or troublesome. And then we normally just kind of flag that table as like this person's gonna be have a problem. Let's make sure there's no, there's nothing that they can pull up or because most of the time, if there's a silly mistake or there's something nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of a hundred, no, the guest doesn't care. Like it's like there's, there's something's gone wrong or even like silly things. Like we only have a girl, a female and a male bathroom. And if someone's in the bathroom, normally before the guest gets up, we will say, sorry, there's someone in the seat there. Now we'll let you know as soon as they've come out. Um, but then even like sometimes that can cause an issue. Like you said, with the wild card, 
asking why they don't have six bathrooms in a 15-seat restaurant. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, just watching those tables and, uh, um, and then just making sure you're on your game. But normally we treat it as a bit of a, a challenge and a bit of fun. Yeah, I like that sort of turning into humor because some people would, you know, would maybe freak out a little bit or kind of like lose their nerve when they see like, you know, maybe that overly assertive guy or girl that's, yeah, maybe trying to like assert their dominance in a situation that they don't know anything about. Like that that happens in all industries. But yeah, I kind of like the way that, yeah, you sort of tackle it as a team and, and uh, see it as more of a challenge rather than something to be concerned about. I like that. It's all about mindset, right? Exactly. You got to treat us. Don't you can't let them ruin your day. Like if you've been there for since six a.m. and and they're coming in at seven p.m. It's like work too hard for them to let them ruin your day. Do you think that there's any mistakes that sort of aspiring chefs or, or starting chefs make when it comes to dealing with these customers? Like I know a lot of the time the chefs are going to be, um, you know, behind the kitchen wall, so to speak. But then you've also got like your bar staff and your waiters. Do you feel like there's any mistakes that I guess a waiter or a bar staff or some of those staff members that are front of house make uh, when when interacting with difficult customers or even just customers in general? I think. The one that I see, because like chefs are so antisocial most of the time, like we spend, or most of the chefs kind of, apart from the ones that are on TV, they kind of hide behind, you're kind of in like your little insulated wall and you're, the guests are here, you're here, and then the, the kind of middleman is the front of house and they're kind of relaying the problem from the thing. And it's fine, I find it very easy to get frustrated, like the guest wants this, da, 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 and you're already busy, you're already your days, you're always understaffed. You're always pushing it up the hill. So any kind of thing can really push you over the edge. I find that most of the time, if there's like an, like an issue that isn't, or the, the biggest problem I see is that if the chef would go out, like most of the time if there's a big problem, I normally just go out and speak to the guest directly. Like if there's a big allergy um, or if there's been a complaint, the guest feels so much happier because you're dealing directly with the person who's either in charge or who's cooking your food, um, as long as it's in a non-confrontational way, the chef has a fully un- understanding of the situation. If you don't go out, you also don't put a face to the problem. It's just this this person wants it. You go out and you speak to someone. We're kind of human beings. If you speak to someone and they have a problem, m- most of the people in the service industry want to fix that. So I think the mo- main mistake I see is that they don't go out and actually confront the problem. Because nine times out of ten, it fixes everything straight away. Yeah, I can see how, yeah, like sometimes it's interesting being, again, like a customer. Sometimes I've been in that situation where like the front of house staff are like playing the sort of like middleman situation, which is kind of like their role in lots of capacities. But like in that specific role, yeah. sometimes it's really nice if like the chef just like rolls out from behind the the mystery glass and like comes and approaches you about something like that's just me like i yeah. i've really liked that like it's just and and even yeah. like i don't mind when yeah like the head chef or the chef comes over and like even explains something to her, or even set like i don't mind that kind of touch like i know there are waiters for that but you know like i, I think it's a bit yeah. dorky when um chefs come out and like stand by you and sort of this is this and this is that but like just a quick like you know a really quick entry, really quick exit. Like I've enjoyed that and it's not something you get all the time, but I can see how, yeah, just like that little bit more, you know, confronting an issue from the chef's perspective rather than like hiding behind somebody else to like do the work um, would be super beneficial from a uh, consumer's perspective. A kitchen uh, is obviously extremely fast-paced, like, if you're watching any of those shows and like I know it's glorified, I know it's all filmed, but like I've had mates that are chefs, I've seen, you know, you poke your, your head in or even if you've got like a, a stage type um, kitchen where it's open and the people that are sitting in a restaurant can view what's happening. Like you can see there's there's clearly a lot going on. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned communication as being like a key thing to to handle, I guess, the the franticness of a kitchen is there any other strategies that you can think of that just help you manage stress in i guess a high pressure high stakes environment yeah i think i don't get stressed as easily i think as other people especially like within a kitchen situation normally it's set up the way that you can 
you should be able to figure everything out. Stress ball. <laughs> yeah, a little stress those thing, ball. Little, those things have never worked for me. Up. They never um, work for me. You know, they're just like no, squeeze this no, ball. No. And it's like, I just want to throw this or like bowl it at like a set of wickets. Like I don't want to squeeze it. Yeah. They've never worked yeah. for me. I don't know if they actually work for people, but you know, like no, you always I'm get sure given them the in like office, gift packets. The office environment maybe. I think, yeah, for stress management, if you get so overwhelmed, sometimes it is just good to go outside and reset for five minutes and come back or take just a minute to breathe and reassess and pick it up sometimes especially in busy restaurants when i worked in the u.s where we would do 140 a night a very high level you get to a stage where it's just so much on that you need to just reset your section even if like the orders don't stop but just put everything back clear your mind clear your board set up fold your towel again and go again and that normally kind of is a nice way when it does pile up too much from a business perspective, what do you think is the number one thing that you can attribute your success to? What do you think has been the deciding, the changing or the the leading factor in your success? After my wife, who helped me immensely, I think, uh, in getting everything put together, I would probably say, I think, yeah, the... Just, I think it just sounds too corny, but I think this like hard work always just gets you over the line. Nine times out of ten, just be like that extra. Like if you were to just do an extra hour every day, your life over the span of a year would be so much different. Like if you were just like extra, extra hour, extra two hours every single day, it just compiles. And I think having that mindset of just I think there's a book called Atomic Habits where you just get into really good habits. You do a lot of have a good good like morning routine, set yourself up for success. And most of the time, I think within success, it's just not it's just avoiding the shit. Like nine times out of ten, if you just don't stuff up by like, I had a big meeting tomorrow. I'm not going to go out and get wasted tonight because I'm not going to be fresh in the morning. Like most of the time, success is just not stuffing up and just prioritizing what you need to do, setting yourself some goals and just working towards that because I think that really over time compiles. I feel like people overcomplicate success. Like almost yeah, any successful person in business that I know uh, or whenever I've had success in my own life, it's always been – very simply put, working beyond the set hours that you have and and doing that little bit extra on the weekends or sometimes a lot extra. Like it's not a complicated thing. And like I'm not a billionaire (laughs) uh, or anything like that. But like the- Not yet, Tim. Come on. Give yourself some time. (laughs) The money that I have made, the money that I have made in my life- you know, has been as a result of not like the nine to five work that I've done, but like the work that I've done, as you say, just like the hard work on the weekends, that extra hour or an extra two hours, you know, like it's nine nine o'clock at night right now. Like I could be, yeah, spending spending time with my family, but here I am like learning from somebody like yourself about an industry that I have no idea about and, you know, getting getting people like yourself that have – you know, success and and getting them out there to the world as as best as I know how. So I just think that, yeah, I think you're completely right. Like I think people, like when you said it sounds corny, like I actually just think the more people that just open up and say, actually, it's just me doing a shitload of work and there's no like secret (laughs) recipe, (laughs) then then people can like get out of this like habit of like going on TikTok and like, uh, or Instagram and like you know to um, finding, finding and stuff yeah and, like know. finding their favorite guru like making somebody else rich instead of like <laughs> worrying about like the work that they do yeah I just think it needs yeah. to be said more often from actual successful yeah, people that definitely. have like made it in business <laughs> uh, in terms of like I've got a I've got a really good friend um, he's been a chef for a while whenever I go around to his house you know like. He cooks absolute crap, like for himself. Like it's usually yeah. like a can of baked beans, or, or like at best he'll like cook up like some eggs and bacon. Or like my favorite from him is like a steak with eggs, just steak and eggs, like classic, yeah. 
male, I don't know if I'm stereotyping, but just like, yeah, like <laughs> classic steak I, and eggs that. meal. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. just, just makes it up. And like, I'm looking at him, I'm just like, mate, like, what are you doing? Like, you, you know, you're like a, a fairly respected chef at like this restaurant. Like, clearly, you know how to cook. You've got the facility, like, your kitchen's pretty good. Like, you know, why aren't yeah. you looking after yourself? And when I look at what he's doing, I just think, like, you know, is it that he's so burnt out and just can't be bothered cooking for himself because he's cooking for everybody else? Like, I guess, you know, with the long hours and the, you know, the extreme dedication that obviously chefs have, how do you, how do you guys, yeah. uh, you know, have time to, to look after yourself or, or more to the point, like, you know, do you enjoy cooking for yourself even though you're cooking so much for everybody else? Yeah, I think um, I nearly put myself in the same category. Like I don't normally cook at home unless it's like I had steak today as well. So for myself, I had steak, I had boiled eggs, boiled eggs for breakfast. Um, <laughs> the stereotype's real. Stereotype's real. Yeah, the stereotype <laughs> is real. It lives on. I think for me the main reason is that like Seoul is quite – or anywhere I've lived, I've never had a really – well set up kitchen like i if you came into my kitchen you would think that it's well set up but i think from a chef's perspective it isn't like our big dishwashers will put everything through in 90 seconds like at my house i don't even think i have a whisk or we don't have like a stand blender or stuff like that so most of the food that i would like to cook it would just make so much mess and it would just be so tight it would take me two hours here it would take me 25 minutes at work so um, definitely the stereotypes real. I don't think it's necessarily burnout. I think most chefs just get home and it's like, I'm going to put something, something simple towards myself, like something low effort. So maybe, yeah. Um, but that's something I've been working on this year. It's kind of all last year's getting out of those habits. I feel like it's probably okay to have like a low effort meal, providing there's like some thought into it being healthy. Cause I feel like, yeah. again, I don't want to stereotype, but like, I don't know why. Like, what's your thought on this? Like, there are a lot of overweight chefs. Is that right? Like, is that Australian-American or is that just, like, not at all? Yeah, I think. It's hard to know. Yeah, they always say don't never trust a skinny chef, right? That's right. Like, you know, like, like it it is a stereotype. (laughs) But, like, okay, if that's the case, then I can assume that, like, Mm -hmm. maybe, like, yeah, they're going home, no effort, can't be bothered, like, I'll just eat whatever whatever I want, um, yeah. or just like maybe grab takeout on the way home or something. But I feel like, yeah, if you're going to – I feel like you guys that are working so hard and, yeah, like, you know, maybe a bit frustrated with the foods that you can produce at home, I feel like, yeah, if you can look yeah. after yourself, it's just going to put you like legions above even – like it's going to give you that slight advantage, isn't it, because – you're going to have that energy when you do go to work. You know, you've been eating well, you've been looking after yourself. Your mind's going to be clearer. Whereas, yeah, like I, yeah. I sometimes feel that, say, with my with my friend that, yeah, I just wish just wish that he uh, cooked a little bit healthier for himself rather than yeah. just uh, yeah, did whatever was quick yeah, and no, easy. I, yeah, no, definitely. I think, yeah, maybe that's a – I think it is very common though. I think it is something that chefs need to kind of improve, I think, is their, yeah, personal nutrition. I got you. Now, Joseph, I understand you have how many Michelin stars for your restaurant now, sir? We have one Michelin star. We've held it for the last four years, uh, pushing for two Michelin star this year. So it's kind of my big goal for 2023 to get to the two Michelin mark. Uh, We did a renovation this year and poured in another half a million dollars into the restaurant to kind of push us to that next level. Um, so fingers crossed. So, yeah, I just wanted to, on behalf of Bestake Mastery and myself, obviously, is is just uh, congratulate you on your success. And uh, oh, thank you. I, I can I can tell that you're passionate, and I can I'm really looking forward to coming over there and trying some of your food. So I'll have to call up a couple of months in advance and oh, we'll give you see, give, we'll give you <laughs> give you a pseudo name or something. It'd be, it'd be awesome to uh, to come over and see what you're up to over there. But I really want to just uh, give people the opportunity to come and try food and follow some of the stuff that you're doing. If people want to get yeah. in touch or even just come in, uh, maybe they're traveling, they want to come and see what's going on with your restaurant, 
How can people find you? Where can they go? And how can people keep up to date with what you are doing? Uh, yeah, so I have a YouTube channel. Uh, it's mostly, in, I speak in Korean in that one, but that's mostly dishes from the restaurants called Yoli Haleo. It's on Yoli Haleo. Um, then all my socials is just my name. The restaurant is called Evett in Seoul. Um, so most people, if you just type in E-V-E-T-T in Google, it'll come up as the only restaurant there. Um, yeah, and then just follow me either on Instagram, Joseph Lidgewood, or the restaurant. Um, you can kind of follow my journey here in Seoul. And if you're coming to Seoul um, and you've heard this, feel free to DM me. Um, and you can make a reservation that way or just to say hello or if you have any questions about being a chef, feel free to drop me a line. Awesome, Joseph. Mate, we really appreciate your time and I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us and sharing uh, with us and the audience just exactly, I guess, behind the scenes look at uh, a day in the life of a chef and, and a very good one at that. And we hope you get that two Michelin stars, but I'm sure you will. And we, uh, yeah, we just wish you all the best for the future. Really Thank appreciate you. your time. Thank you very much. Well, there you go, crew. The big takeaway from Joseph for me was that if you are looking to be successful in whatever you have chosen to pursue, then there really is no escaping working beyond the 40-hour work week. More realistically, 60 to 80-hour weeks are probably the minimum as Joseph described. For him, he was working 100 hours to move from that employee mindset into the business mindset and it really goes to show that if maybe you've got a side hustle, maybe you're working a standard uh, job uh, during the day like many of us do and you're trying to escape that like a lot of people are also trying to do, you're going to have to put in above the time that you are working in that job. You're going to have to take time out of your weekends. You're going to have to work a little bit later at home when you get home in order to make that dream or that goal that you're looking to achieve more realistic. Crew, if you want to check out Joseph's restaurant or see the kind of things that he does with food, you can check it out at www.restaurantevert.com. Alternatively, you can follow all of his work in the description to this episode. Also, crew, if you enjoyed this piece of work, please be sure to like and subscribe to Mistake Mastery on however you listen to us on. Check out key insights from all of our episodes on Instagram at Mr. TM Walters and at Mistake Mastery. Have a fantastic rest of your week, crew, and of course, we will see you all again next week. Take care.